The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. They roar, they breathe fire, they are terrifying wild beasts. Unless they're cute and cuddly, like pets. Unless they're our companions, perhaps to guide us through a magical universe. They are dragons, and they've been lighting up the human imagination for centuries. They've also been inhabiting the world of literature in many different traditions. We accept them as myths. We embrace them as part of our storytelling world. We might even enjoy the idea that at one time they actually existed, or were so believed to exist that they might as well have. Professor Scott G. Bruce of Fordham University, editor of the Penguin Book of Dragons, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. My thanks to all of you once again for helping me get through what has turned out to be a sort of comedy of errors at my house, if you can call it a comedy when two people are forced to share a pair of crutches while a third person is in isolation from a pandemic disease. And a fourth person is me, frantic and forehead smacking. Today I am a nurse. What was Tevye's line? I was in Fiddler on the Roof once upon a time playing Perchick the student. We played the show for a bunch of kindergartners one day in exchange for their feedback, which the teacher compiled and sent along to us. And in one scene, Tevye comes out pulling his cart and he sits down and he says wearily, Today I am a horse. And the kindergarten audience burst out laughing. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Raucous noise from the little kitties. And the teacher sent us the feedback. What do you think they liked, those little ones? The costumes? The sets of Anatevka that we worked so hard to build? Or the songs that came booming out of our chests? The poignancy of a man who's letting traditions go as his children grow up and face a brave new world. No, 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 and no. All of the comments were, I liked the part where the man turns into the horse. It's a lesson in storytelling, in a sense, a lesson that audiences might be receptive to certain things at certain times and certain things at certain ages in their lives. It's why I like the history of literature and why I like looking back at least 50 years so we can get some perspective. Just what were those people thinking then? What were they facing? And what stories hit them in which ways? Why do some stories light them up like dry tinder? And can those stories still do the same to me and my dry tinder, my thirsty tinder, parched, waiting for the blaze, which doesn't always come. Sometimes my parched branches, my, my rickety old wood, reads one of these stories from the past, and the story lands on me like a bucket of cold water. And sometimes I read one of these stories, and I think, I love the part where the man turns into a horse. 
maybe my delight is not the same as what the author and audience shared back in the day. But when you're playing nurse in a mash unit like I am these days, you'll take delight wherever you can get it. Speaking of delight, we have a delightful conversation today with a delightful guest on a really fun topic. The Penguin Book of Dragons. That's a pretty good brand, don't you think? If you say speakers by Bose or leather by Coach or a Steven Spielberg movie, you know what you're getting, right? A certain stamp of approval, a sign of excellence. The Penguin Book of dot dot dot. Well, sign me up. So let's head into the world, the medieval world, maybe, or maybe the ancient world, Europe at its darkest, and Asia, too. There's a lot more to dragons than meets the eye. Let's explore it now. Scotchy Bruce and dragons after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Professor Scott G. Bruce of Fordham University, editor of the Penguin Book of the Undead and the Penguin Book of Hell. His new work is the Penguin Book of Dragons, which breathes fire into our understanding of these popular mythical beasts. Professor Bruce, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much. So you say we're living in a golden age of dragons, which is hard to deny, given the popularity of everything from cuddly dragons in animated movies to more formidable dragons in stories like The Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones and Harry Potter. But let's go back to the origins and start with ancient dragons. What are the earliest dragons that we find in literature? So the, the earliest dragon saga that we have is actually, um, it, it's very old. It was written between 1500 and 1200 BCE. Hmm. It's a Sanskrit hymn called the Rigveda, about the battle between the storm god Indra and the dragon Vutra. It's very short. It, it ends far too quickly, <laughs> for my liking, but it's the first time we see an epic hero battling a dragon. Ah. In this case, a storm god, magic sword, fighting a large serpent that is a symbol of drought. Uh, this dragon's evil is that he holds back water from 
humankind, and it's up to the storm god to defeat him to let the water flow. Ah, okay. Well, let's go ahead and define dragons a little bit so we make sure we know mm-hmm. what you consider to be a dragon and whatnot. Are they reptilian? Do they have to have wings? Or what distinguishes for you that this is a dragon as opposed to some other kind of creature? Indeed. So dragons dragons do change over time in terms of our expectations, and, and you've just given us some of the characteristics of the modern expectation. They tend to be large reptilian fire breathing mm-hmm. and we're we're also used to dragons being intelligent and and often endowed with speech um in the ancient world whether in ancient asia or ancient uh in greco-roman culture dragons were almost always serpents and almost never flew mm. so they they did they did not have to have wings their um breath was not normally associated with fire but rather with venom so they would they could exhale uh, venomous gas but they are almost always described as being serpentine. Now, that didn't prevent later readers from identifying them with the winged dragons of their own cultures. We mm. see this particularly in the European Middle Ages, where medieval people reading ancient texts nonetheless impose upon them the characteristics of the dragons that they were familiar with. Right. Sometimes often writing in the margins of manuscripts when they see the word serpents for serpent in one of these stories, they would write Draco in the margin <laughs> to let it be known that they recognize these things as dragons. And I think the affinity there is the size. I think that hmm. there's uh, it's it's the fact that these are of monstrous size. Right. Okay. So the I mean serpents obviously are real creatures and exist, but these stand out because they are enormous, bigger than a, any snake that anyone would have ever seen, I suppose, and also because they it sounds like they have some kind of agenda or a, a relationship to the universe that's more mythic than actual. Mm-hmm. And absolutely, and some, some Roman authors we see playing on this. Lucan, in the first century CE, in his poem The Pharsalia, talks about the death of Medusa, whose you know decapitated head is carried on the Pegasus over the deserts of Eat of of North Africa. And Lucan gives us this wonderful scene where all of the gore dropping from the Medusa's head springs alive in the forms of different kinds of serpents, including dragons. Mm. So there's, there is a very strong mythological element to them. So yeah. you can see dragons as being descended from this mytholo- this particular mythological monster. Right. And are they described as being old and, and from another time already, even in the ancient literature? Or are they described as contemporaneous and as if there could be one right around the corner or if there's one currently <laughs> living uh, in the lake near you. Right. So the richness of ancient literature is such both. So some authors like Ovid, you know, writing in the at the beginning of the Roman Empire in his book, The Metamorphoses, he's talking about the, the mythic time in Roman history. And one of the stories he tells in the distant past is the story of Cadmus founding the city of Thebes in Greece. And Cadmus founds the city on the site of uh, a spring that is guarded by a large serpent that we call a dragon. Mm-hmm. And um, it's the defeat of this dragon that allows the city to be founded. Um, this, this story actually has a wonderful kind of modern resonance to it, too, because as part of the, the, the prophecy of the foundation of the city, Cadmus removes the dragon's teeth and buries them, and up from them spring human beings who are fully armored, and they fight one another until the, there are five remaining. And those five go on to found the city with him, and then the nobles of the city of Thebes trace their descent back to these people who sprung from the dragon's teeth. But the we still have the phrase sowing the dragon's teeth, right? As a, any anything that causes discord or or you know creates a violent situation, and it goes back to Ovid's story. 
Uh, but that story of the dragon is set in the dim and distant past. Mm. Uh, but nonetheless, Roman authors were also happy to talk about contemporary dragons. They just didn't talk about them as being nearby. Oh, so right. Pliny in, his, you know, Pliny, in his natural history, loved to talk about the far distant places on Earth, and he loved to talk about Africa, and he loved to talk about India, and he tended to populate those places with mythological creatures, including dragons. His dragons are in India. And it was a way for him, it was kind of a Roman imperial project to say, you know, in Rome, around the Mediterranean with the Roman side control, you know, we, um, it's all, it's a place of order. And those places on the fringe of Roman control are still places of chaos, you know, where, where wild and monstrous creatures still live. Mm -hmm. So he was well aware that, or he at least believed dragons existed, but for him, they were far off, you know, in, in distant land. Right. Well, it must have been difficult at that time to distinguish what was being talked about as myth from what was being talked about as real, because, mm -hmm. you know, if you described an elephant to someone who, <laughs> if that was in another continent, they would think that it was a, a tall tale or, or an exaggerated creature, and then it turns out that elephants exist. And so, right. I, I can imagine that... They'd be describing it. it. It might look a little gullible to us today, but you could see why they weren't writing kind of tongue in cheek or saying, wink, wink, uh, I'm going to talk about dragons, but we all know they're not real. They didn't know exactly what was real and what wasn't back then. Oh, indeed. And you can certainly imagine that, I mean, there was certainly commerce between South Asia and the Mediterranean in the Roman period. And you can imagine stories about, you know, boa constrictors and other huge serpents. Mm. Yeah. growing in the telling as they as they you yeah. know, came on the lips of travelers <laughs> from one part of the world to another. It's interesting that you mention elephants because in Pliny's account of dragons, they're intimately related to elephants. They 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 have an, um you know they have a longstanding feud with elephants who are their main prey. And so Pliny describes these battles between dragons which are depicted as being, you know, large serpents and elephants. And these and these stories continued to be told throughout the Middle Ages. Uh, medieval authors and readers loved to read them and actually illustrate them. So many of our dragon illustrations in the Middle Ages come from illustrated versions of Pliny's man of manuscripts of Pliny. Right. And I don't want to spoil it for listeners, but for those who might like the uh who would win a gorilla or a bear kind of debate? Pliny has a, an elephants versus dragons chapter that is very entertaining. Okay, so at this point, before we get to the Middle Ages and Beowulf and that kind of dragon, are dragons a foil for heroes? Are they always hostile to humans? Or do we see them playing other roles in these stories? Well, they're almost always hostile, to be sure. We, we, we have no friendly dragons in the ancient world at all. Dragons are not allies of human beings. They are, they are just large, natural creatures that are a menace. So they, they're beautiful foils for heroes. I mean, they're, they're, they're wonderful because not only do they represent, you know, the martial power of the hero who's able to use weapons to overcome uh, a, a dangerous creature, but they, are, they also show off, you know, the ability of Rome to civilize other cultures mm. symbolically through mm -hmm. the conquest or vanquishment of these of these creatures that live in other lands, whether that's yeah. in Africa or in India. And they might be standing guard, and they are the obstacle to overcome in order to unlock some mm -hmm. kind of access to a place or a treasure or something like that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yes, indeed. And they make for good stories, <laughs> right? Right. You know, they're 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 you know they're marvelous. We and we see the we see the you know that allure continues today. 
But I must say that the ancient authors did not dwell at great length on their characteristics. In fact, we, we hear more mm. about the heroes than we do about the dragons mm. in the ancient period. And that was one of the things that to me was maybe, you know, slightly deflating because I want, you know, because I love these stories and I want, and I, you know, I, I want to, I want to read about the dragon and all their fullness. What we get here are more sketches of what these creatures are. And these sketches get rounded out in the medieval period. But, but, but ancient authors were, were more concerned, I think, with heroism than they were with the monsters themselves. Right. Okay. So how, let's move to uh, ahead in time a little bit. So how did the rise of mm-hmm. Christianity affect the way Europeans viewed dragons? Well, I, I think the most direct way to say this is that dragons are ripe for allegorical interpretation mm-hmm. in the medieval period. You know, medieval Christians inherit the Hebrew scriptures with their depiction of the serpent in the Garden of Eden in Genesis. And of course, they look back to the Christian New Testament written in the first century with their depiction of the dragon of Revelation. So we, we see on both ends of the biblical spectrum there a reptilian creature as an agent of the devil. And so dragons become synonymous with the devil in medieval thought, in Christian medieval thought. They are depicted, you know, constantly and discussed often, but almost always through the lens of this Christian worldview at the center of which is the devil as the tempter. Right. So it's the presence of Satan or the devil that makes these so prominent in the medieval mind is that your yeah certainly in the certainly in the European Christian worldview yeah. and this this view is so strong that when Christian monks in the Middle Ages are copying and reading ancient texts they impose these allegorical readings upon them so you know you alluded earlier to to Pliny's wonderful account of the battle between elephants and serpents or sorry and dragons and when medieval readers look at that they read it as, oh, this Pliny must be talking about, or we can read this as an allegory for the devil attacking human souls. So the elephant becomes an allegory for human, you know, the human soul. The the dragon is, of course, an allegory for the devil. And and so so this this text written in the first century by a pagan Roman author about natural history becomes in the Middle Ages a way to understand you know, a Christian cosmology through a description of the natural world. Right. That's so interesting because it seems like the people who are most interested in dragons view them as pagan or a pre-Christian mm-hmm. kind of beast or a world. Mm-hmm. And and yet it does seem like the rise of dragons in our European-centered culture as you say, it does sort of coincide with this rise of Christianity. Yes, yeah, and in fact, the, for for Christians, the dragons of antiquity were just perfect <laughs> because they they just they they fit right into their worldview. They were, uh, you know, a kind of large and imposing and terrifying personification of that kind of you know invisible enemy they like to call the devil mm-hmm. and one of his many manifestations. Right, and yet they still in the medieval period. They still had that there were unknown territories being explored and fantastical creatures that were being newly discovered. I wonder if there were any dinosaur fossils that couldn't be explained that would suggest there were giant reptiles or anything like that. Did you find anything like that in your research? Yes, indeed. There's, there's, been, there's been some interesting discussions about that. In fact, they, there's a good literature on understanding of fossils in the ancient and medieval world. And so one of, one of the pieces of that literature that I'm most interested in is the discovery of elephant skulls in what is now Turkey. And because of the way the elephant nasal cavity works, because of the trunk, 
the skull has a giant, you know, hole in the front, which of course makes it look like a giant one-eyed creature. And so elephant skulls were often thought to have been like cyclops skulls. And, and of course, the discovery of large rib bones of mammoths and things like that could easily have, you know, lent the appearance of being, you know, the, the bones of dragons, let alone dinosaur femur, you know, the femurs of large sauropods and things like that. Interestingly, in Asian traditions, in early modern Asia, bones that were thought to be the bones of dragons, but were probably dinosaur bones, were, were, were believed to have a very, very strong medicinal value. Right. And, and some, of the, some of the Asian literature surrounding dragons has to do with the medicinal quality, you know, the medicinal properties of their bones, which is something that never comes up in Western cultures. Right. Okay. Well, let's take a quick break and then come back with a, a deeper look at the dragons in Asia. I'm really fascinated by how they had kind of a different tradition and a different purpose. So let's do that and come back with Professor Scott Bruce. Okay, we're back. So what were some of the differences that we see in the dragons that were coming out of Asia? So in the sources that I was able to obtain, there are two very, very strong traditions in the depiction of dragons in Asia, especially in early modern Asia, that differentiate them from Western Europe. One is that the dragons in the Asian stories actually speak. So they are, they're endowed with human speech. And suddenly you have, I mean, the two, the rather two-dimensional dragons of Greco-Roman antiquity and the Middle Ages suddenly have much more uh, depth when, when you introduce speech and they, they can actually talk to their, you know, the, the humans that they encounter. Yeah. And part and parcel with this, is that the dragons of that culture, they, they tend to be shape changers, mm. they tend to take human form, and they tend to exhibit what we would call noble cultural traits. So they live in palaces, they <laughs> eat nice food, and, and already, as you can imagine, between their speech and these cultural affinities, there's, a, there's an empathy that can develop between humans and dragons in right. these Asian stories. And romance. In some cases... And romance too. In yeah. fact, almost always star-crossed. <laughs> but yeah, so in some cases we have human, we have dragons asking human heroes for help against even more monstrous creatures. Mm. One of the stories in the book is about a monstrous centipede that is eating the dragons, and they need a human hero to help them. In other cases, it's about humans being nice to creatures just out of empathy, only to find that those creatures are shape-changed dragons who then fall in love with the humans, but because they are from a different culture, they, they have a different sense of time and space. This is almost always catastrophic for the humans yeah. um, involved, but nonetheless, it's a romantic element that we just do not see at all in the Western tradition. And it makes these stories, in my mind, much more charming, much more approachable, and actually they anticipate many of the stories in Western uh, fantasy literature of the 20th century. Right. I was just going to say, I don't want to jump ahead too far here before <laughs> we leave behind the Asian dragons. And I also want to ask you about some of the encyclopedists. But mm -hmm. it does seem like you can just reason it out if we're talking about the dragons we've talked about previously in the Middle Ages or in Greece and Rome. And if they are there as foils for the hero, they would call up for us questions of are you strong enough are you brave enough did you were you mm -hmm. canny enough in battle and that kind of thing if the dragons can talk and if they're recruiting human allies to fight for them against even greater foes or if they are living in palaces and taking the form of beautiful men and women they're there for potential romantic relationships or you can feel sorry for them or empathy that's calling forth a whole different set of uh, emotions or actions from the humans who are encountering those dragons, which feels much more modern and closer to the kind of dragons that we're seeing today. Absolutely. And, uh, and it's so wonderful to 
read texts from a culture where one of the registers of heroism is empathy. Mm, yeah. Um, and not yeah. just, I mean, it, it has to come along with martial prowess. These heroes have to be able to defeat, you know, big monsters, but at the same time doing so because they identify with this creature that, and then, and then want to help it. And mm. the dragons often present themselves in human form and say, look at, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to scare you off <laughs> because right. I'm kind of scaring myself. But at the same time, we are terrified and we need your help. Yeah, it's, 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 it's really quite striking compared to what's happening in Europe at the same time. Because it gets a little boring otherwise, I think, to sort of say uh, <laughs> this one was so, you know, this dragon was so strong, it could do this. But the hero was even stronger and he, he put his grip on him and that kind of thing. It's much more interesting and more complex and resonates d- more deeply for an adult reader anyway to think sometimes mm-hmm. the greatest show of strength is to show mercy or sometimes Mm -hmm. the true hero would you know coordinate allies rather than just go up with his very strong powerful arm and swing his very powerful sword and chop somebody's head off right exactly Exactly. okay i agree (laughs) so is there also something i was getting from your book that they were in asia there was more of a focus on water rather than fire yes we don't i don't think in any of the Asian stories that are in the book is fire a prominent feature of any of these dragons. They Mm. tend to be much more water-oriented. This may well go all the way back to the Sanskrit story that we began with. I mean, there's a a, fascinating thing here. When dragons become, I mean, when you think of dragons as being kind of personifications of some kind of thing that that is feared by the society in which they live, the associations of dragons and water make sense in a, in a place where drought is an issue. And we can unpack other dragons in the same way. So, for instance, the dragon of Beowulf, which, you know, the, the Anglo-Saxon poem written probably around, well, written, told, created sometime around 750 CE in Northern Europe, written down in a manuscript around the year 1000 CE. This is, this is the dragon I think we all feel most familiar with because it's the dragon that Tolkien used as the model for smog in The Hobbit. And it has no name in Beowulf. It has no voice in Beowulf. It doesn't speak. But it's a dragon that hoards treasure and is awakened when someone comes and steals a a tiny little bit of its treasure away. And when you think about, you know, unpacking this dragon as a cultural symbol, very much like the dragons as a symbol of drought and associations with water in the Asian world, this dragon is clearly associated with with wealth. It hoards wealth away. And we think, well, what's wrong with that? Why, why does it matter in that society that a dragon sits on its treasure, which is now such a stereotype of what dragons are? But in that society, the redistribution of wealth by, by war leaders to their followers was a way for them to cement loyalty. It was a way for them to create cohesion in their society. Mm. So a true monster was somebody or something that prevented the redistribution of wealth. Yeah. And so the dragon of Beowulf is frightening because he's large and serpentine and winged and breathes fire. But at the same time, it's it's the fact that he's present, preventing that wealth from circulating, which is it, which has a corrosive effect on the society in which it lives. And then in the case of Asia, in the case of Northern Europe, we, we see that they are very, very potent symbols and they often are embedded culturally, culturally inscribed, as it were, with the thing the society fears most. Yeah, so it's almost like a protean version of a social contract where it's saying, we will accept that you are the the emperor or the king or the supreme leader. We will accept that you have this power. We will grant you this power, but you had better not be stingy with what you 
what you gain from that, or we are all going to be miserable and we may end up mm-hmm. sending someone out with a sword to take care of you. Oh, yeah. And the, I mean, we see it over and over again in Beowulf and some of that other northern vernacular literature that the kings are called ring givers. Mm. You know, everything about their power is what they give away. You know, it's not, they don't hoard wealth themselves. They, they, their power comes from the redistribution of wealth to their followers. And thereby, everybody wants to keep following them because of their generosity, because they are a source of, you know, of, of, you know, of goods and whatnot and plunder. So to have a creature that stops that <laughs> in the same way as to have, to have a creature that stops the water <laughs> in, a, in communities where water is a necessity, the heroes are the ones that can get the water flowing. The heroes are the ones that can get the gold flowing. Mm. Right. And to just jump ahead again, we're sort of, <laughs> we keep jumping forward into the future oh, okay. or into the, into contemporary, but to, to say that in the past, maybe the understanding was here's power on the one hand and generosity as the counterbalance. And today it might be here is leadership. And being granted that by the decision of the many or or a democratic vote, for example, but then mm. what it goes hand in hand with is, are you able to express an understanding of what others are going through or an empathy or mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. wisdom more than just a, a, a straight transactional will give you power if you also return gold back to us? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, so... I wanted to, oh, before we leave Asia, I know they have Komodo dragons. I was wondering, are there any animals or other actual creatures in Asia that may have played into this conception of dragons? Or are they also looking at distant lands and talking about the other and and creatures that are far away? Well, you know, we have since in the early, late medieval and early modern period, we have many Western Europeans traveling to Asia. Marco Mm. Polo is probably the best example that we have. Mm And and when he writes about so-called dragons, you know, he's probably making reference to crocodiles and things like that, you know, yeah. large aquatic reptiles that he saw. And then he had no other way to talk about them. For him, it was just a shorthand for, oh, these are, you know, these must be, these must be dragons. Yeah. Sort. And so they, so, so certainly travelers to South Asia would have seen large, you know, river reptiles like that and had to, you know, make some judgments about what they were and often describe them in their works. Mm. Okay, so let's talk about, I think a lot of readers are going to expect in your book, and we haven't really talked about what the book is like. I mean, I I assumed that the brand of the Penguin Book of X is so commonly known that people understand what they're getting. It's what I knew I would be getting before I saw your book. If you said, you know, so-and-so has a book about dragons, that could be anything from a a comic book to, you know, an illustrated encyclopedia or something. But when you say it's the Penguin Book of Dragons, you know that it's going to be kind of the literary look at something and your book sources and and includes them as excerpts from different Mm -hmm. eras. It's organized. It has a a wonderful introduction and, and all of that. And so I think a lot of readers are going to expect that if they open the cover, they'll get stories of heroes going on quests to vanquish a a dragon-like foe of one sort or another. But one of the things I enjoyed about your book is that it also includes some examples of these early scientific explanations or or thoughtful mm-hmm. analysis by Pliny the Elder we talked about. And there are some others uh, like Edward Topsell. And what were you finding mm-hmm. from these encyclopedists and how did that help your understanding of dragons? Well, I love these early modern encyclopedists. They, yeah. I, I feel some kind of affinity with some of them because they are 
they they seem to get very very excited about particular topics and then they root around and find everything <laughs> they could possibly read about them and right. then they gather all of it together and they publish it in these massive encyclopedias so Topsell was a he was a early modern polymath he lived in the uh, early uh, 17th century he collected everything that he could find. He was deeply interested in animal lore. Hmm. So he published a book on four-footed creatures, everything you'd want to know about animals. And but, but he had a real soft spot for what he called serpents. So he wrote a book called The History of Serpents in 1608. It was published and then, and then reprinted innumerable times. And there's a large portion of that book that's given over to ancient and medieval dragon lore. So what we see is we see all of these early texts being refracted through the enthusiasm of, a, of an early 17th century dragon nerd, hmm. <laughs> really, because, because he has no, he has no filter whatsoever as far as i can tell he publishes like he he either translates or paraphrases all of this ancient lore that he's read and so for me it was fascinating to see how and the reader of the penguin book of dragons will see this too how centuries later pliny is still being read some of these medieval authors are still being read and then he also preserves stories that just have not survived in any other source so it's this real kind of potpourri of dragon lore and and if you believe edward topsell dragons are everywhere <laughs> they are yeah. just, they've been everywhere <laughs> they, they, he, the world i think the chapter is called the world full of dragons because he just <laughs> sees them everywhere he wants to see them everywhere and some of the accounts that he collects are contemporary where he's gone to actually look at remains of creatures that people thought were dragons he's collected local stories about people's encounters yeah. with dragons and in, in uh, whether in in you know desolate marshlands or or in you know the foothills of mountains or whatever it's always a desolate place so to enter into edward topsell's world is to enter into this incredible enthusiasm for a creature that has been around for centuries and in according to him is still around if you look you know if you look hard enough yeah and he believed in them as much as he believed in a tiger or an elephant absolutely yes for him they were part of the natural order part of the natural world right a branch of serpents and then there's at the same time he has a contemporary a german jesuit athanasius Kircher, I hope I'm pronouncing mm-hmm. that correctly. Mm-hmm. And he takes yeah. he, he takes a bit of a different approach. So who was he and what was mm-hmm. his project? Well, again, and, and uh, Jesuit intellectual and his obsession was actually about the subterranean world. Mm. He was just yeah. fascinated with the idea. He was like he was like a, a precursor to Jules Verne. He, he, he really believed that the world underneath the, the crust of the earth was hollow and filled with all sorts of interesting inhabitants, including dragons. So he wrote this incredible compendium, a gigantic two-volume work called Mundus Subterranus, so the subterranean world. It came out in 1665. I've actually been able to handle an original edition of this while I was preparing the volume, and it's and it's, it's gorgeous with all these fold-out maps and filled with fascinating illustrations, including illustrations of dragons, because he believed that there were whole subsets of dragons that lived underground. And this guy was so fascinated with the subterranean world that he had himself lowered into an active volcano <laughs> so he could hear the sounds. And so, I mean, it's amazing this guy lived all day, frankly, because he was just, he was really an adventurer. And, and, uh, and again, it's just so much like he, he, he probably could have written, you know, you know, at the earth's core or any of these other, you know, and this is late 19th century science fiction novels and, and would have loved to have been a hero in one of them, I suspect. But he has fascinating things to say about subterranean dragons and stories that place dragons living in caves and generally speaking in, you know, underground burrows. And I was particularly delighted to get these translations into the volume because very, very few people have, have heard of, have heard of Kirka before. And yet he's, he's, he's one of these, obsessive polymaths who has a great deal to say about this topic. And one of the things I loved, I started reading his 
this passage, and he starts by asking the question, well, do these creatures exist, or are they found only in fables? And then he said, yes, I, I had to acknowledge, I had to set aside my doubts after reading such reliable sources and talking to eyewitnesses <laughs> that they are, in fact, true. Yes, you can't argue with that (laughs) right but he but but there was you know his intellectual bent was such that he 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 did he placed value in eyewitness accounts and he found people who were willing to talk about their encounters with them or sightings of them again almost always in in out of the way places you know we 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 don't hear much about dragons in big cities or anything like that but nonetheless it was he, he had very little doubt that dragons existed right and then during the enlightenment we see dragons starting to be treated as allegories or figures of fun and and it's almost mm-hmm. like the the world has grown up and has become too scientific and logical in order to follow these crazy pagans with their crazy ideas. There's a few exceptions there. Milton might be one of them. But then they rise again. So do you have any any explanation for why dragons fell out of favor in the 18th and 19th centuries? And then how did they come back and why in the 20th? You bet. So I think that I think that global exploration really takes away the last refuges of the natural mm. dragon. Every time we, you know, and 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 now Google Maps has been the end of it, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> or dragons. Yeah. <laughs> but the but we see the dragons being pushed, you know, the the, the civilization so so called moves mm. and gobbles up more territory, the dragons retreat beyond it. Mm-hmm. And we've lost any maps that say here be monsters. Right. <laughs> you know, the, right. The, and one of my favorite you know, they're almost elegant. These little these little newspaper entries that I have in the book under the heading The Last American Dragons of Dragon Sightings in Rural California and in the American Southwest at yes. the end of the nineteenth century. These are the last little glimpses we have of dragons before, you know, the world becomes no longer mysterious. But but fortunately in the in the nineteenth century we also see a resurgence of interest among Victorian readers in medieval stories mm. and in medieval allegories. And so this this resurgence is called medievalism. It's a topic of study, but this but the story of Saint George becomes immensely popular again in this period. And you don't probably don't. I mean, it still remains popular. Everybody knows that Saint George slew or slew slay, yeah killed a dragon. And so, but at the same time, it was it was it became such a commonplace trope, Saint George and the dragon, that that these literary dragons were kind of. You know, they they were very two dimensional. They were very one dimensional. They were very. They got to be a little bit boring, and they were true paper tigers, right? Everyone knew Saint George was going to kill the dragon, and we see the story all over the place. It's in it's in advertising motifs in the 19th century. It's reduced to children's literature. It's you know, it's in popular stories for adults. But it's it's at that point where we see certain authors. Um, in particular, I pick out Kenneth Graham and Edith Nesbitt writing right at the turn of the 20th century. They begin to write children's stories that subvert the paradigm of the George story, mm. where children encounter dragons and want to treat them sympathetically and want to overturn the stereotype of the dragon being bad and the Christian hero slain. In Kenneth Graham's story, The Reluctant Dragon from 1898, and this is how the Penguin Book of Dragon ends with these two stories, the, um, uh, a little boy befriends a dragon in the Oxford countryside. <laughs> And the story set in the Middle Ages, and when the when the local townspeople hear there's a dragon, they call St. George to come and slay it, but the boy intervenes because the dragon is actually really nice and likes to just talk and has, and writes poetry. It's a very cultured creature. 
And the and so the boy convinces St. George not to slay it, but to have a kind of mock battle where the dragon pretends to be slain so it can live happily ever after. Mm. So Kenneth Graham's story, The Reluctant Dragon, is a complete subversion of this very popular stereotype of the medieval story of George and the Dragon. But yeah. even better in my mind is Edith Nesbitt's story, The Last of the Dragons, which was published posthumously in 1925. And in Edith Nesbitt's story, it's a, it's a, it's a feminist story, which is one of the things I love about it. It's about a young prince and his princess to be and they have to go and she has to they have to go to where a, you know into the mountains where a dragon lives she has to be taken captive and threatened by the dragon and the boy has to kill it and the girl is having none of this this is nonsense according to her she even goes so far as to say to the prince i'm even a better fencer than you are i should be the one slaying the dragon mm. um and so they go and meet the dragon and they convince the dragon like we're not gonna do this anymore this is nonsense why don't we just all be friends and the dragon has this wonderful line where he says, your, your kindness quite undragons me because no one's ever bothered to be friends with me before. Mm-hmm. And so they, they find out that the dragon has a real thirst for petrol. And of course, this is a story set in a somewhat more modern period. And they, 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 so they feed it gasoline and it agrees to become their pet, their companion. And in fact, it, it takes it it straps seats on its back and takes them and all their child, childhood friends to the seashore and becomes the first airplane. So so it's a, it's a it's a wonderful story in which the dragon and the young girl contrive together to overthrow the kind of sexist stereotype of the St. George story. They don't need any rescuing. They don't need to be antagonistic. They can just be friends. Right. And so with these two works of children's literature and other imitations, we, we really see the introduction. We see the domestication of dragons in the Western tradition. We see the introduction of dragons as helpers, as allies. And as you know, this goes on. This you know Stories like this inspire almost all of modern fantasy literature, whether it's, you know, the how to train your dragon, you know, it's, you know, any of these stories that feature dragons as, as, as allies, even I would say George Martin's, you know, dragons as weapons of war are still operating under the guidance of a female character who has control over them. And so, so even those stories, which are, you know, which are much more horrific than these children's stories are, are nonetheless indebted to them somewhat. And that, that tradition of the domesticated dragon exists is, I think, is a dominant theme in modern fantasy literature, but it exists alongside a persistent, tenacious medieval theme of that, that, that Tolkien really perpetuated in The Hobbit, which is which is more true to the kind of Northern European vernacular traditions of early medieval Europe. Yeah, but except, in the, except for the speech. <laughs> yeah, but in the values that we see, the change in values, it's almost like a change between the Old Testament and the New Testament. With mm. in in the early days, it was who's the strongest, and can we show that we can vanquish you, and mm-hmm. that is our mission and our purpose, and that is what's important to us. And then it becomes, once again, can we work with you? Can we feel sorry for you? Can we treat you with kindness? Can we collaborate with you? Can we be good Mm -hmm. companions for you? Can we turn the other cheek, so to speak? Yeah, um, and I, I think that I think that's true. But but one of the things that these stories, these children's stories about dragons do is they strip away the dragon's allegorical meaning. They they humanize them. There's there's no mm-hmm. effort to to they 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 kind of almost jettison the the entire Christian symbolic system that has you know undergirded dragons for a long time to make the dragon more like a person and and to give it human characteristics. And that way, they have a great deal of affinity with some of these Asian stories from the early modern period. Although I have no 
sense that there is a direct connection there at all. But but it also it's it's fascinating because in the late 19th, early 20th century, we're beginning to see the domestication of a number of different cultural symbols, cultural figures that that beforehand had been very frightening. So for instance, angels undergo a fascinating domestication in the mm. 20th century. We tend to think of angels as being sympathetic and nice and whatnot. Medieval people were terrified of angels. Um, when they showed up, they were usually angry <laughs> yeah. and they were absolutely had no sympathy with human beings for the most part. They were they had other things on their agenda. Ghosts, too, undergo a domestication in the course of the 20th century. Mm. And I think we're absolutely finally put to death by Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore in the <laughs> 1980s. But the, so, so this is part and parcel of this domestication of, the, of these things, these otherworldly things or these extra human things that used to terrify us. And now we, now we control them. And, but the prior history seems to be important, too, because it seems like the child or whoever's mm-hmm. encountering the creature says, everyone else thinks you're evil and scary. But I see the real mm-hmm. you. I see that you're mm-hmm. just like us or that you're actually scared too or or whatever it is. It's sort of uh, the past and the reputation seems like it's important to the the transformation that we see. Absolutely. It, it's it, This new transformation requires a frame of reference in which the dragons were formerly feared. You're absolutely right. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you can't, we haven't, and, and we haven't gotten away from it entirely either. I mean, I mean, again, yeah. to come back to, to Daenerys Targaryen and Game of Thrones, you know, the, the tension is there that she can control the dragons because of who she is and her lineage. But if she's not controlling them, then boy, we're all in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah. it exists, you know, so both, both aspects of it exist in that very, I mean, and, and I use that story simply because it's the most widely known these days. Yeah. Okay. So you have also done Penguin books about hell and the undead. How would you compare the source material and your work as an editor among those three topics is which one was the hardest to find sources for or which one is the most that you had to leave excerpts on the cutting room floor or what was it like for you to do these three books well thank you it's um uh, it was a wonderful privilege to work on all of them and they all are they were all rich and varied in their own way i think that hell more than any of them had the most left on the cutting room floor in part because of the scope of the book which goes from concepts of the punitive afterlife in the very ancient world all the way up to the late 20th century the book ends with guantanamo bay and there is just such a wealth of material written about hell a lot mm. of it repetitive uh, so the, the the trick in that book was find find finding the representative sources that 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 were expressive of changes in a very very static tradition. Yeah, right. But I, I do have a great fondness for the first one, the Penguin Book of the Undead, in part because it was the very first one that I did, and in part because it it, it is much more of an ancient and medieval book because it only goes up to Shakespeare, and uh, one could easily have continued it to the modern world. But but there the the richness of stories about the undead i guess because the undead is like dragon is a single concept the undead there are many different kinds of undead mm. whether you're talking about the return of souls whether you're talking about the the you know the animation of dead bodies uh whether you're talking about communication with the dead through you know mm. uh, mediums and necromancers and whatnot so that 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 book is is much more textured in terms of 
the subject matter that it covers because the un, because the undead itself is such a broad term even though it's a, I mean the fascinating thing about the word undead itself is that it is actually the word is a thousand years old it was it's coined in old English in the 10th century is the word in old English but it is first applied to God because it means undying and which is very ironic given the way given what the word undead <laughs> evokes for us today so that so 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 that book it, it, in a sense it's a bunch of different strands you know thematic strands that that carry that book forward and no less no less you know fascinating and exciting in my mind okay i have a surprise bonus question for you please are you ready i am okay during a period of upheaval you're brought in before a panel of judges who are deciding what they should believe about hell the undead or dragons they want to know two things from you as their expert. Which one has the most reliable sources for their truth? And which one best exemplifies the human condition? Which oh do you gosh. which do you pick? <laughs> <laughs> well, it it this you, I think that the answer really depends on whether you want to be optimistic or pessimistic. <laughs> Ooh, okay, let's start with the optimist. So I think that from the standpoint of an, an optimistic view, I, I think that I have to talk about the undead because mm. so much ab about histories of the undead, stories about the undead, is about memory and connectivity with people who are gone yeah. and an attempt to create kind of continuities with people we've lost and an attempt to project forward an idealized view of what's to come because yeah. the, you know the one of the one of the things about the universals of our mortal condition is that we don't know when things will end for us and we don't know what will happen the moment it ends right and we spend a lot of time whether we're theology whether we're theologians or philosophers or poets or artists we spend a lot of time meditating on that unknown right. and ghost stories are a way for us to control our anxiety about what's to come in part by having the spirits of the dead return to us to tell us either everything's okay or everything's not okay. Right. <laughs> and here's what you can do to make it okay. <laughs> right. But it takes off the it takes off the table the just emptiness, void, it's over, that's it. Absolutely. And mm. I think that's one of the things that, you know, that's that's the space for art. That's the space for poetry. That's the space for visionary literature. And and often this literature has there's there's a there's an optimistic turn to it that I really appreciate and and also as like you or like any of your listeners who've lost loved ones, you know this sense of continuity that they are not in fact lost mm -hmm. and that in through stories and through art that they can continue to communicate with us is is really is is really hopeful and I said I think says something about the human condition. Now from the pessimistic side, I will say that hell is something that embodies the exact opposite of that. Yeah. I, I think hell is such a such a cruel and tyrannical and controlling concept that that where to me it, it says the very worst about human beings. Um, the idea of a punitive afterlife really arises very early in human literature, far predating Christianity. And what I, I see it as being a direct result of injustice in human societies. The moment you get gross injustice in terms of wealth and in terms of power, you begin to see people who have no access to justice mm. projecting justice into the next world. So that really powerful man who is wealthy can do what he wants without repercussions. I won't mention any modern names here. 
Mm. But there are many of them you could mention here, right? So it's, well, we cannot ever hope that that person will be, will find justice in our unjust society. Therefore, we have to say, well, they're going to go to hell when they die because they will find justice in the world to come. And Mm. I've written a little bit about this and not everyone agrees with me that my belief is that when we achieve a just society, we will no longer need a place of infernal punishment because we will have satisfied our sense of justice in this world and thereby no no longer need to project it into the next. Mm. Because we take a kind of, we, we, we need, in an unjust society, we need the catharsis that a future punishment awaits the unjust because they will never, because of the way they're protected, never find it here. So I would say that, so I'd say that the concept of hell, and, and there's of course a long tradition of hell as a control, you know, as a rhetorical device to control people's behavior and whatnot. And, and th- this became particularly distasteful for me when I was reading a text within the Penguin Book of Hell, they include in their excerpts of it, is a 19th century treatise written for children, telling children what awaits them in hell if they misbehave. Mm. And this, th- this text is one of the most distasteful things I've ever read. Right, <laughs> um, right. But I had to include it because it's so vivid and awful that these, these, these poor children who were taught this, you know, were, were living in absolute fear of the, of the slightest little, you know, little girls who like to wear dresses, you know, find themselves trapped in cells wearing burning dresses for eternity because of because of their immodesty or because that was what they were thinking about more than what they should have been thinking about. Mm. So so I'm I'm a very, very I'm a I'm a very outspoken enemy of the idea of hell. Right. <laughs> Having spent a lot of time thinking about it simply because it, I find it to be such a tyrannical concept. Right. Well let's hope that those children were able to call upon some friendly dragons as their <laughs> allies to help them fly away from those cells that they were in. Professor Bruce, thank you so much for joining me today on the History of Literature. Oh, I so appreciate it. Thank you for the conversation. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Professor Bruce for joining me. You can find his books at bookstores everywhere. The Penguin Book of Hell, The Penguin Book of the Undead, and The Penguin Book of Dragons. Who's the most interesting man in the world in those commercials? The Dos Equis guy, I think Professor Bruce gives him a run for his money. I wonder what he's working on next. Maybe vampires or werewolves, although I suspect those might have already been done, actually. I feel like I saw those in a bookstore once. How about the Penguin Book of Penguins? Maybe that's too recursive. We'll have to ask our old friend and recursion expert, Natasha Joukowsky. And maybe the Penguin Book of Penguins. Maybe that's not scary enough anyway. The Penguin Book of Angry Penguins? I don't know. How about the Penguin Book of Podcast Hosts Gone Insane? I'll supply a photo for the cover. A photo of myself. Get it? Because I'm the best example. Or should I say the beast example of such a creature? I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.